Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We have a number of uh, upcoming programs, but I don't want to forget that the Czech boys, Alexander and Nicholas, are here, and they're in the back selling uh, some wonderful CDs that Chris has presented, many of them at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and they're back there in the back. Many of you have purchased his CDs in the past. I encourage you to do so, so that he can continue to raise his wonderful family. And, and All the proceeds go to their seminary fund. Oh, their seminary fund, okay. <laughs> so it's good to have the boys. Make sure you say hello to them in the back. We also have Mrs. Ann Carroll with us this evening. Mrs. Carroll is, a, um, is the, uh, the wife of Dr. Warren Carroll, who reposed in the Lord just last year. But she herself has done wonderful, wonderful things for the Catholic Church, establishing Seton Home Study, Seton High School, publishing history books herself, and helping Dr. Carroll publish his, I believe, six-part series on the history of the church. Uh, I know that uh, Mr. Check and myself have both received many blessings through reading that text, as well as to be able to be exposed to the true history of the Catholic Church. And so we are indebted to the gift of uh, Dr. Carroll and Mrs. Carroll. Thank you very much. Our speaker this evening, Christopher Check, is the Director of Development at Catholic Answers. Prior to joining Catholic Answers, Chris, a graduate of Rice University, served for nearly two decades as Executive Vice President of the Rockford Institute. Prior to that, he served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps, attaining the grade of Captain. He writes and lectures on church and military history, the lives of the saints, and the dangers of modern communication and technology. He has lectured to many audiences, reputable and disreputable, across... <laughs> the Republic and in Europe. He wrote this, by the way. But his, <laughs> but his favorite place to lecture is in Northern Virginia at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Chris and his wife Jacqueline and their four sons, Nicholas, Alexander, John Paul, and Nathaniel, show and breed cavalier King Charles Spaniels under the kennel name Top Meadow Cavaliers. If you need a dog, here's your man. Named for G.K. Chesterton's Beaconsfield Estate, please join me in welcoming the great Christopher Chow. Well, I'm honored to be invited back. This is, uh, this is an extraordinary operation Sabatino's put together, and... Um, I'm running out of clever ways to tell you to write a large check to him. <laughs> so I'm just going to say it. There's nothing like this in the Rockford Diocese, and as you heard, I've taken a new position with Catholic Answers, and I'll be moving to San Diego after Alex graduates in the spring of next year. Uh, until then, I'm working from home. But uh, 
even, even with Catholic Answers in San Diego, you know, an operation of 47 people, there's nothing like this in San Diego. This is an extraordinary thing that uh, Sabatino and Melanie and these magnificent volunteers do. And so support them generously. Support them generously. Do come uh, on Sunday. Uh, it's a great story. Some of you saw the movie, I'm sure, about the Cristeros. Um, and, uh, and, and they got a lot of things right there in the movie, and we'll, we'll explore it in a little more detail. Uh, but I have 100 images that go with that talk, some of them quite uh, moving. Uh, and uh, I know that you'll enjoy it. I know you'll enjoy it. So please come on Sunday if you can. All right, now imagine uh, you're the father of a beautiful family. On Sunday, you are making your way with your wife and your three daughters, 11, 14, and 17, through the streets of the city toward the cathedral. Your daughters, dressed for mass, are the picture of feminine beauty and modesty, and also joy as they laugh and talk amongst themselves. As you approach the square, the plaza, that you must cross to enter the cathedral, you see a few other families like your own filing toward the entrance, but you also see here and there gangs of rabble, young men, teenage boys, shabbily dressed, calling loudly to one another, tossing back and forth bottles of cheap wine from which they take long drinks, though it is still morning. As you walk across the plaza, you hear the vulgarities and catcalls from these ruffians. And as their words penetrate your ears, you know that your daughters hear them as well. Increasing your pace, you hurry your family toward the cathedral steps and begin to climb them. Just as you are about to cross the threshold, you are caught off guard by an unshaven middle-aged man lingering to one side of the door. He suddenly steps in your path and puts his face in the face of your youngest daughter. His breath reeks of alcohol. He dangles a string of skinless dead frogs in front of her and with a demonic smile growls, this is what you and your sisters will look like after we have raped and killed you. When you shove the man away, a police officer appears and threatens to take you to the station if you do not keep the peace. Your protests are ignored, and you move your family inside the church and attempt to console your child. Now, imagine that you are a priest of one of the great orders. You are not a young man. For 30 years, you have taught theology in the Catholic high school, bringing the next generation of the faithful to a deeper understanding and love of Jesus Christ. Six months ago, the state police came and seized your school turning you and your confreres out into the street. You have a small room in the basement of a sympathetic family, but you are ever conscious that your presence there makes the father of the family nervous. His boss knows that he has taken in a priest, and he has threatened to fire him because of it. The family is poor, and meals for the past months have been scant. You have just finished a bowl of soup and are preparing to say your office when the door to your room bursts open. Four men seize you and drag you into the street where a gang of 20 or so, some wearing hammer and sickle armbands, hold an impromptu trial at which you are the defendant. 
They accuse you of unspeakable acts with your female students. You deny them. They follow with similar accusations concerning young boys. They strike you when you do not confess to these allegations. You are a priest of Jesus Christ, you tell them. Your Jesus does not come to your defense, they answer. Grabbing you, they strip you of all of your clothes, and your nakedness is an occasion for a new round of insults about your vow of celibacy. But they are going to give you a chance to prove your masculinity. Carrying you above their heads, the mob takes you through the streets to a brothel where prostitutes are paraded before you to tempt you to break your vow. You quietly pray for the souls of your tormentors. The ordeal in the brothel lasts for hours until one of the women, her heart stirred to some small mercy, calls a stop to it. The mob takes you outside and demands that you deny Jesus Christ. You refuse, and your refusal is met with a shower of bullets. Your dead corpse is mutilated, desecrated, and thrown in a common grave. But you have joined the martyrs at the eternal throne. Now, I have asked you to imagine these horrifying events, but the truth is that they are facts of history. Picture them, and you will have some sense of the diabolical terror that overwhelmed Spain through most of the 1930s, a terror that culminated in the Spanish Civil War. The cliché when it comes to wars declares the victor writes the history. Certainly this is the case with the wars of the United States. American school children are told that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, and most Americans see the dropping of the atom bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima as the event that stopped Japanese aggression and saved hundreds of thousands of American lives, rather than, as Bishop Fulton Sheen put it, our national sin. The Spanish Civil War is the exception. In the end, the defenders of tradition order, and Christianity won the war, after which Spain enjoyed decades of prosperity and vitality and a culture in which, as leftist historian Hugh Thomas, whose history of the war is considered definitive, put it, the Catholic Church permeated every aspect of Spanish culture. Yet, Insofar as Americans know anything of the Spanish Civil War, it is through the admittedly compelling propaganda of Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, or through the grotesque fragmented chaos of Pablo Picasso's Guernica. In other words, the version of events written by the vanquished. That version goes something like this. An oppressed working class rose up against a tyrannical aristocracy allied with the Roman Catholic Church. Their valiant battlefield efforts and the near universal sympathy of the international world notwithstanding, their workers' revolution was brutally suppressed by a fascist military dictator who was a puppet of the German Nazi regime. The whole affair was a dress rehearsal for Nazi tyranny and heroes of the People's Revolution were hunted down and executed for decades following the war by a fascist dictator who ruled Spain with an iron hand, invading private lives and suppressing individual liberties. Why the defeated have written the approved version of the Spanish Civil War and the subsequent reign 
of Francisco Franco is a worthy question. But first, a brief explanation of the origins and causes of the Spanish Civil War, its chief players, the diverse groups that formed its opposing sides, and its anti-Catholic essence. Second, a summary of the action of the first few months of the conflict, including an account of the siege of the Alcazar. And then we'll answer our question. Why have the defeated written the approved version? Spain holds mysteries, the depths of which the outsider cannot plumb. And one of them is a fierceness of her people. It may derive from their polyglot origins, Celts, Carthaginians, Romans, Visigoths. Whatever its roots, the Spanish taste for blood was honed in seven centuries of fighting the enemies of Jesus Christ during the Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula, far and above the longest war in history, in which the Spanish people took back their land yard by yard from Muslim invaders. Without pausing to wipe the blood from her sword, Spain turned her fiercely Catholic heart toward the New World. And if her heart was bellicose, we can thank Providence for nothing less would have brought the cross to America and established the glorious Kingdom of Mexico to say nothing of given the world the shock troops of the Counter-Reformation or rallied Europe against the Turk in the second half of the 16th century. Spain repelled Napoleon and his Enlightenment fired army, but by the middle of the 19th century, like Mexico, like Italy, Spain was torn by brutal internecine fighting that attacked the two pillars of civilization, the monarchy and the Roman Catholic Church. During this century, a political and cultural movement called Carlism, for its defense of the Bourbon line descending from King Carlos V, came to the fore and took up arms in three successive wars in defense of altar and throne. The loss of the Spanish-American War, however, was the final humiliation in the slow dissipation of one of Christendom's great empires. And intellectuals and politicians who hated Spain's glorious past, that is, her Catholic past, seized on the disaffection of Spain's working classes to foment resentment against the monarchy and the church. You should know, by the way, that concerning the Spanish-American War, President McKinley's justification for taking the Philippines from Spain, who had held the Philippines for three centuries and who had brought Christianity to her shores, was because God told this Methodist president that he needed to rescue the Filipinos from the darkness of Romanism. From 1902 until 1923, Spain endured no fewer than 33 governments. A brief period of stability followed during the benevolent dictatorship of Prime Minister Miguel Primo de Rivera under the ineffectual King Alfonso XIII. But when revolutionary fervor swung public sentiment back toward the left, King Alfonso abdicated 
and made a speech hoping his country would avoid a fratricidal civil war. He boarded a plane to England and he never returned to Spain. The war Alfonso hoped to avoid was five years away. Now, filling the power vacuum was the Marxist, a man named Manuel Azaña, who led, in 1931, the formation of the Second Spanish Republic, an event he heralded with a speech in which he proclaimed, Spain has ceased to be Catholic. A new party called the Popular Front, made up of anarchists, Marxists, Masons, socialists, and communists, many of whom despised each other, but all of whom were reunited by their common hatred of the Catholic Church, fomented a workers' revolution that, in fact, was a war on tradition. The Church, associated in the imaginations of these revolutionaries with the monarchy and the aristocracy, became a target of brutality. Bishops who spoke out against the new Marxist regime were exiled. Religious orders were banned. The Jesuits, among Spain's greatest gift to the church, were driven from the country. Hundreds of churches were burned to the ground. Hundreds. And religious instruction in Spain's schools was outlawed. When protest arose from the remnants of Spain's faithful, and even from some liberal newspapers, about the ban on religious education, Manuel Azaña claimed that the common veneration of religious objects of devotion, for example, the sharing of holy water fonts or the common kissing of a crucifix, for example, was nothing less than a grave threat to public health. Do not tell me this is contrary to freedom, Azaña thundered. It is a matter of public health. In response to complaints about his government's deliberate decision to look the other way as anarchist mobs firebombed hundreds of churches, Azania declared, all the conventos in Spain are not worth the life of a single Republican. As persecution overwhelmed the faithful, the ranks of the Popular Front swelled. Anarchist union membership approached 600,000. It's an extraordinary number for a country the size of Spain. This figure is greater per capita than the number of Bolsheviks in 1917 Russia. A Marxist, anarchist, separatist uprising in Barcelona and throughout Catalonia plunged the northeast of Spain into chaos. Revolutionaries occupied agricultural states in southern Spain and divided up the land. This the government called land reform. Over the next three years, the whole of Spain saw labor strikes that paralyzed Spain's economy. 330 political assassinations, 160 churches burned, and more than a thousand wounded in public riots. The persecution of the church did not escape the attention of the Holy See. On June 3, 1933, Pope Pius XI published Dilectissima Nobis, an encyclical on the oppression of the church in Spain. Pius condemned the Spanish Constitution of 1931, which ordered the confiscation by the state of all church property and then required the church to pay rent to the state 
to continue to use the very buildings and facilities that the church had owned for centuries. Thus the Catholic Church is forced to pay rent on what was violently wrenched from her, wrote the Pope. He condemned the confiscation by the state of liturgical instruments, gems, religious arts, sacred vessels, vestments, and he declared that greed and a desire for Spain emptied of all Catholic identity were the true motives behind the theft. Pope Pius concluded, Faced by a menace of such enormous damage, we recommend to all Catholic Spain that laments and recriminations be put aside and subordinating to the common welfare of the country and religion every other ideal, all unite, discipline for the defense of the faith, and to remove the dangers that threaten the civil welfare. We invite all the faithful to unite in Catholic action. Now, those whose hearts were most tuned to the clarion call of Pius XI were the citizens of Navarro in northern Spain, where the Carlists reignited their movement under a new name, the Traditionalist Communion. Donning red berets and uniforms bearing the Sacred Heart of Jesus, they cleaned their rifles and prepared for the day when they could join a new crusade for the soul of Spain. Elsewhere, right-wing military officers with less of a religious motive than the Carlists, to be sure, but no less of a hatred of the lies of the Marxists were beginning their own conversations about taking back their country. Just as the elements of the left, the Popular Front, were diverse and often at odds with one another, Marxist, Communist, Socialist, Masons, a strange mix there in the Popular Front, the groups of the right that came to be called the Nationalists were among the strange bedfellows that politics, especially in times of great crisis, can make. Was the Popular Front truly advancing a Marxist revolution? The speeches of Francisco Largo Caballero, the Secretary General of the Socialist Labor Union, the UGT, who eventually replaced Manuel Azaña as Prime Minister in September of 1936, are clear. When I speak of socialism, I speak of Marxist socialism. And when I speak of Marxist socialism, I speak of revolutionary socialism, and I desire a republic without class warfare, but for this it is necessary for one class to disappear. And I am a Marxian socialist. Communism is the natural evolution of socialism. It's last and definitive stage. We are determined to do in Spain what was done in Russia. The plan of Spanish socialism and Russian socialism are the same. Largo Caballero reveled in his nickname, the Spanish Lenin. And he spent two years in a jail cell studying the writings of the Bolshevik revolutionary, during which time he evolved from pleasant, well-meaning socialist to a radical advocate of Marxist atheist revolution. If the imaginations of the members of Spain's working class, whether in the factories or on the vast agricultural estates in southern Spain, 
where the wealth gap between landowner and, in effect, serf was, we have to admit, staggering, were captured by the hollow promises of the workers' revolution. And if the sadistic and destructive youth of the various Marxist and anarchist parties were fired by this rhetoric, sober heads understood that the disaster destroying Russia, which her international agents were now actively importing to Spain through the Comintern, right, the International Communist Committee, was not what Spain needed. Roman Catholic traditionalists, conservatives, and fascists found common ground in not wanting to see their country destroyed by the chaos of communism. The coalition that formed on the right was no less complex and bewildering than that of the Popular Front. Among its chief representatives were the devout Catholic Jose Maria Calvo y Sotelo, a member of the Cortes, the Spanish Parliament, who was the chief voice of the Catholic opposition to the Popular Front. The man had suffered numerous death threats from Marxist politicians on the floor of the assembly, threats that in the end came true. He was taken from his home in the presence of his wife and children and assassinated in the middle of the night by a Republican hit squad. Calvo's party was El Confederación Española de Derechas Autonomas, or the Spanish Confederation of the Autonomous Right, or Autonomous Conservatives. A party even more dedicated to an authoritarian solution to the chaos destroying Spain was the infamous Falange, or Falangists, the Spanish organization founded by Antonio Prima de Rivera. The Falange, which took its name from the ancient Greek military formation, the Phalanx, and resembled in some respects the parties of Italian and German fascism, was by no means a friend of the Catholic Church but was a certain enemy of the democratic political theories, in other words, the attacks on authority that were born in the Protestant rebellion, came to angry adolescence during the French Revolution, and vibrant maturity in the applied Marxism of the 20th century. A certain friend of the church, however, were the third members of this coalition, the Carlists, who hoped that an armed uprising would restore Spain's monarchy. To understand how the Carlists felt about the nationalists with whom they were making common cause, think about the frustration that devout Catholics have today about our own country's Republican Party. Right? Half-hearted efforts to defend the unborn, launching unnecessary and costly foreign wars, failure to check unfettered immigration, favoring multinational corporations over family-held businesses, promoting an economy based on consumption rather than production, and yet the prospect of an alliance with the deliberate baby killers and advocates of state-sanctioned sodomy in the Democratic Party is too depressing to contemplate. In any case, all parties to the coup agreed that central to its success would be the leadership of Spain's most brilliant military commander. General Francisco Franco. The warrior had a distinguished combat record from Spain's war in Morocco and was the man who had transformed Spain's 
service academy into, in the opinion of the French war minister, André Maginot, the top college of military science in Europe. The architect of the coup, General José San Giorgio, who at the time was in exile in Portugal, conceived an assault from the south, led by Franco, from Spanish Morocco, and a simultaneous one from the north, led by General Emilio Mola from Pamplona, where nationalist fifth columns throughout Spain rose up to overthrow local governments. This war, by the way, is the origin of that expression, fifth columnist, fifth column. It refers specifically to forces loyal to Franco inside uh, the city of Madrid later on in the war. Under Manuel Falconde, the Carlist militia, or requetes, as they were called, mustered in the north as well. Now, the story of how Francisco Franco, who had been cashiered to the Canary Islands by Spain's leftist government, was transported to Morocco, unknown to the government, so that he could take command of the Spanish army there, is the stuff of an adventure novel. The characters include an English Catholic journalist, a young red-haired pilot and his privately chartered twin-engine de Havilland plane called the Rapid Dragon, a retired British Army major turned MI6 agent, two glamorous young ladies posing as tourists, and the story of how Franco moved thousands of troops across the Straits of Gibraltar with only five ships and some German and Italian aircraft is one of the great amphibious operations of the 20th century. Time does not permit the telling of either of those stories. It should be said that Franco could not have achieved this amphibious operation without the aid of German and Italian aircraft. Indeed, the whole war in time devolved into a war by proxy between Stalin on the side of the Republicans and Mussolini and Hitler on the side of the nationalists. It is this outside meddling on both sides that prolonged the tragedy. Because long after Spain ran out of money, the butchery was kept alive by foreign aid. The action of the three years of the Spanish Civil War is complex, well beyond the scope of these remarks. Both sides were guilty of horrifying atrocities against noncombatants. Even Ernest Hemingway begins, for whom the bell tolls, with an account of the massacre at Ronda, right? Who's read the book? You ought to read it. It's a, it's a brilliant book. The massacre at Ronda, a town in southern Spain. Hemingway got into all kinds of trouble for doing this because it was a Republican atrocity. Hemingway's leftist friends were angry at him for including this in the book. 512 of the faithful, simply for their loyalty to the church, were led out one by one through a gauntlet of leftist terrorists who beat them and then marched them to a cliff where they were thrown to their death into the 100-meter deep canyon that cuts down through the middle of the town. And there are stories also of magnificent heroism. And one that you all should know, one that stirs the hearts of all Catholics, took place in the Alcazar of Toledo. Forty miles south of Madrid, the ancient city of Toledo rises above the New Castilian Plain, and on the high point of the city stands the fortress castle Alcazar, 
built by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and reinforced in 1887 as a military academy. In July of 1936, most of the cadets at the Alcazar were home on summer leave. Only the permanent staff remained, along with the commandant of the academy, an aging colonel, Jose Moscardo, a devout Catholic and a fine officer, but not one of such significance that he had even been included in the coup. He hadn't even been told of the uprising. When he heard radio reports of Franco's invasion, he drove to Madrid to consult with some officers in Madrid whom he trusted. When they revealed the coup to him, he joined without hesitation and sped back to Toledo to secure a nearby munitions factory for the nationalist cause. After rallying a group of officers in Toledo, Moscardo attended mass at the Alcazar on the morning of July 19th. It would be the last mass the fortress would witness for 54 days. That afternoon, the war ministry in Madrid contacted Moscardo and ordered him to surrender the weapons in the academy's armory. To stall for time, he requested the order in writing. On Monday, members of the Toledo National Guard and their families streamed into the Alcazar seeking protection, and soon a force of about 1,100 swearing their loyalty to Spain and to the church had mustered within the walls, along with some 700 women and children. Without wasting a moment, Moscardo organized a convoy to transfer 700,000 rounds of ammunition from the nearby munitions factory. And not a moment too soon. As the convoy was returning from its final run, a force of 3,000 Republican soldiers commanded by General Jose Recalme surrounded the Alcazar and demanded surrender. Offered the chance to leave, not one of the fortress's defenders defected. Moscardo sent a message to Recalme. Because I love Spain, and because I have confidence in General Franco, we will not surrender. Further, it would be dishonorable to surrender the arms of a gentleman to you, red rabble. <laughs> Subsequent efforts by other high-ranking Republican government officials to convince the old colonel to surrender were met with similar defiance. Moscardo explained to his men that Franco was marching from the south and Mola from the north to take Madrid and to relieve them. They had ample stores of water and, thanks to his quick thinking, abundant ammunition. The one thing they did not have, a Catholic priest. The siege began with a fury. And over the next weeks, the besieging force swelled to 15,000. Artillery shells rained down on the fortress and machine gun fire swept its courtyard. But the defenders of the Alcazar put up a fierce resistance, as did the castle's 12-foot thick walls. To taunt the men in the Alcazar, the communist militia hurled blasphemies at them and threatened their families. On one occasion, Republican soldiers dragged a priceless statue of our Lord from the Toledo Cathedral and in full view of the ramparts of the Alcazar, sentries began to hack it to pieces with an axe. Then they threw it in a bonfire. But sharpshooters from the fortress's ramparts felled the desecrators with one bullet each. Collapsing into their own fire, they were consumed with the statue they had desecrated. 
Annoyed at the valiant resistance the Alcazar's defenders were putting up, communist militia took their revenge on the church in Toledo. A Bible that had belonged to St. Louis was destroyed along with priceless works of art. Over the next two months, 105 priests and religious in Toledo were brutally martyred. Ad hoc committees called Chekas, named after Stalin's secret police force, right, Cheka, rounded up civilians and interrogated them to determine their loyalty to the Popular Front. On the morning of Thursday, the 23rd of July, they captured a real prize, the son of Colonel Moscardo, Luis. The head of Toledo's Cheka was a cynical lawyer named Candido Cabello, who saw a way to bring about the surrender of the Alcazar. At 10 o'clock in the morning, he called Moscardo on the phone. After identifying himself, Cabello said, you're responsible for all of the crimes and everything else that is happening in Toledo. I give you 10 minutes to surrender the Alcazar. If you don't, I'll shoot your son, Luis, who is standing here beside me. I believe you, Moscardo calmly replied. And so you can see it's true, Cabello continued. He will speak to you now. Luis was then given the phone. Papa, what is happening, my boy? Nothing, Luis said. They say that they are going to shoot me if the Alcazar does not surrender, but do not worry about me. If it is true, replied Moscardo, commend your soul to God. Shout viva España and die like a hero. Goodbye, my son. A final kiss. Goodbye, father. A very big kiss. When Cabello was on the phone again, Moscardo said, you might as well forget about the 10 minutes you gave me. The Alcazar will never surrender. Cabello slammed down the receiver, turning to the Republican militia, he said, since his father wants it, do whatever you want with him. Luis Moscardo was let out. In the Alcazar, Moscardo's fellow officers stood in silent astonishment, unable to console their heroic leader. He quietly walked to his sleeping quarters and closed the door. Luis Moscardo was killed, though his execution came a month later, as did that of his older brother, Pepe, who was working as a hospital orderly in Barcelona. When a communist saw him in possession of a miraculous medal, he was turned over to the Barcelona Cheka and killed. The siege of the Alcazar continued as revolutionary troops dug tunnels under the castle in an effort to explode it with mines. An old colleague of Moscardo who had taught at the Alcazar, but now fought on the side of the communists, was permitted to visit his former commander to persuade him to surrender. Major Vincente Rojo, acting as an agent for Prime Minister Largo Caballero, at least hoped to negotiate the departure of the women and children. For all the wickedness Caballero's popular front had committed, he was concerned about public reaction when his forces eventually blew up a building in which 700 women and children were seeking refuge. Major Rojo was blindfolded and brought to Moscardo's office, where he was told the Alcazar would not surrender. Rojo was filled for admiration for his former commandant, and seeing that he would not move his Catholic heart, 
he asked, is there anything I can do for you? You can send us a priest, Moscardo answered. We want nothing else from you. The priest who was sent was of a stripe that today we would kindly call progressive. <laughs> Canon Enrique Vasquez Camaraza had made his peace with the communists and enjoyed the protection of an anarchist guard at his home in Madrid. Exchanging the communist clenched fist salute with the troops at the siege lines, as he approached the Alcazar, the priest came with specific orders from his handlers to encourage surrender. His efforts were answered by Moscardo thus. We asked for you so you could hear confessions and offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Father Camaraza took the opportunity of his homily to attempt to convince the defenders of the Alcazar and their families of the hopelessness of their struggle. By this point, food had nearly run out. They were reduced to eating horses and barley paste. And two women who were pregnant when the siege began had now delivered babies. Nonetheless, Franco had weeks before airdropped a message promising to relieve them. They put their faith in Franco and in God. The women of the Alcazar informed the priest that they would die beside their men before they would leave them. After giving a general absolution and taking communion to the wounded, Father Camarasa quietly left. At last, the Republicans did detonate several tons of dynamite under the Alcazar, but the rubble created was no easier for the siege force to penetrate than the original walls. However, when the Republicans were at last streaming through the beach, the Alcazar's 15-year-old bugler signaled the approach of Franco's army in the 11th hour. Franco relieved the siege on September 18, 1936. He had made the decision to divert his forces from their march to Madrid, knowing that the delay might cost him his objective. But understanding the benefit to the morale of his supporters that the relief of the Catholic warriors at the Alcazar would bring. The failure to take Madrid in the fall of 1936, whether caused by Franco's delay or not, and the failure of the nationalist uprising in Barcelona forced a war that might have taken a few months to take three years. Three years. But in 1939, Franco accepted the surrender of the Republicans and set Spain on a path to recovery that lasted until his death in 1975. Efforts to paint Francisco Franco as a fascist in the mold of Adolf Hitler are nothing more than lies. Franco was a pragmatic man, but he was a loyal son of the Roman Catholic Church. Adolf Hitler hated Christianity. Franco kept his country out of the Second World War. He did not subscribe to Hitler's racialist theories. Indeed, Franco saved thousands and thousands of Jews by giving them refuge in Spain during the Second World War. Which takes us to our question, which we raised at the start of these remarks. Why have the defeated written the history of the Spanish Civil War and its aftermath? It is because the Marxist version of history is the dominant version of our age. From graduate seminars to grade school social studies, all history today is cast in terms of class struggle. In this version, all history is the oppression of one class by another. Women by men, 
laborers by landowners, one race by another, gullible believers by the Roman Catholic Church. The theory, which is also a lie, started with Marx. It goes no further back than that. And as we read in an encyclical written by Pope Pius XI, in 1937, even as the Spanish Civil War raged, divini redemptoris, or an atheistic communism, it aims at upsetting the social order and undermining the very foundation of Christian civilization. The encyclical written by a great pope whose reign suffered in what he called the Triangle of Terror, Marxist revolution in Spain, Mexico, and Russia, is well worth your time. Let me be perfectly clear what the Spanish Civil War was. It was the gates of hell opened in Spain. It was the greatest period of clerical bloodletting since the revolution in France and on a much greater scale. 7,000 priests and religious, including 13 bishops and thousands of laymen and women whose numbers will likely never be known were brutally martyred, many as they prayed for their killers. A thousand of these have been beatified by John Paul II and Benedict XVI, and the causes of another 2,000 are under review. The feast of some of them, the Martyrs of Asturias, is coming up, October 9th. You can remember that. It's two days after Holy Rosary. Nine priests and a postulant belonged to the Christian brothers and operated a school for the children in the mining town of Turan in northwestern Spain. In 1934, a communist revolution took over the province for a month, during which Marxist Czechos went on a rampage throughout the province, seizing private property, including the town's coal mine. On October 4th, they came to the Christian Brothers School. The priests had been warned of their coming and had consumed the Blessed Sacrament to save it from desecration. The hit squad burst into the rectory, demanding weapons that were allegedly hidden there. On finding none, they dragged the priests to a jail cell where they were confined for four days on the charges of corrupting youth. When in jail, they anticipated their martyrdom and received absolution from the town's parish priest, also confined with them. Remaining ever serene, even to the point of stirring the admiration of Marxist witnesses to their execution, the priests were, on the fifth day, marched by a drunken firing squad to the cemetery shot once each, and then clubbed to death. When John Paul II beatified them, he said, in the eyes of their persecutors, they were guilty of the human and Christian education of youth. Not being afraid of spilling their blood, they conquered death and now participate in the glory of the kingdom of God. Spain's journey into the abyss of the post-Christian world is further along than those of other European nations. At 1.3, Spain has the second lowest fertility rate among the original 15 EU countries. And even the leftist social scientists at the RAND Corporation declared recently, a generation ago, in 1971, Spain's fertility was among the highest in Europe. The dramatic decline in fertility since then is associated with a shift from the pronatalist Franco regime which banned contraception and encouraged large families, to a democratic regime that has no explicit population policy. Now, it is hardly accurate to say that a country that offers contraceptive training in the public schools and offers abortifacients over the counter 
has no population policy. The same, of course, could be said of the United States. But what is certain is that today, it is not taking Soviet guns and warplanes to reduce Spain to a post-Christian nation. May the blood of the martyrs of Asturias and the blood of the martyrs of the Spanish Civil War be once more the seed of the church in this once heroically Catholic land. Thank you. I should have said at the outset, Mrs. Carroll, you do me a great honor to be here. I'm sure you recognize that because I stole liberally from your husband's work. And I, I meant to say that at the outset, but thank you so much for coming. Not only did he steal liberally, but we stole the title and the logo, or the, the picture, from Dr. Carroll's book. So if, if you want to learn more, just go and buy his book. In fact, buy a whole box of them and give them away to all of your friends so that we can go ahead and continue to spread the truth about the true history of Catholic Spain. Uh, we'll take a short break. We'll come back together for a short Q&A. I lived through the uh, Spanish Civil War and remember it very well. Uh, religion wasn't very much stressed in the war. It wasn't the war of Franco-Catholic against uh, atheists or uh, Christian against atheists. But it was mainly uh, Franco who was connected with uh, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy as a dictator against the Republicans who were backed by democratic France and England. Uh, a lot of the intelligentsia of Europe and America sided with the Republicans. One of them is Ernest Hemingway. There are a lot more who fought with them. Sure. Uh, how can you explain uh, the fact that Franco, who was supported by Nazi Germany and fascist, and England and France, the Democrats, supported the Republicans? Yeah, excellent question. Um, the extent to which religion inspired certain members of the nationalist side I struggled to make clear in my remarks that it was an unusual coalition of the members of the Falange, but also at the other end of the spectrum, you know, Carlos from northern Spain and Navarro, who certainly were inspired by uh, their religious beliefs. What is also so is that the atrocities, uh, the desecration of churches, the uh, outraging of nuns, the desecration of bodies, the digging up of bodies of nuns and posing them in obscene poses on the steps of churches. The burning of churches, the murder of 7,000 uh, clergy, 13 bishops, make it fairly clear that there was an element of this conflict that certainly was a war against the Roman Catholic Church. The support of the Comintern, uh, Marxist Russia, of Communist Russia, Spain's release of all of her gold stores under the Caballero administration went to Russia and stayed there and never returned to the country as purchased for arms for the Republican side. I think I also tried to be at pains to say that, you know, there were certainly atrocities that were committed on both sides. And you're right, there was an international sympathy in England and in the United States, probably more so in England, though not entirely. Men like J.R. Tolkien, for example, uh, Roy Campbell, the uh, South African, they were supporters of the nationalist side. And even uh, a leftist like uh, George Orwell, after spending time in Spain, lost his enthusiasm for uh, the commies in this fight. But you're right, you're right. They made up the Red Brigades, the so-called Abraham Lincoln Brigade, quite appropriately named, if you ask me. But um, I know him in the Army of Northern Virginia. It's okay to say that. So, uh, so uh, uh, but you're right. Ernest Hemingway drove, drove an ambulance for the communists in this fight. 
I account for the, the sympathy that existed in America and England because of the success of socialist or communist propaganda, especially in the leftist-owned media in the United States and in England. Also because there, there is an element in uh, liberalism or socialism, whatever you call it, on the left that tends to be more activist than those of us who want to stay home and marry our wives and rear our children and try to turn them into human beings and see that they can get educated and, and that sort of thing. We don't want to go off and, and have causes. I think that international sympathy and our understanding of it, which I tried to address just at the very end of my remarks, is because we've really just been told the Marxist version of history. However, I would recommend to you all very strongly, of course read Warren Carroll's book, it's quite good, but read the Hugh Thomas book. Thomas is a leftist. And read Stanley Payne. I don't know if I put Stanley Payne on there or not. His book on the war just was republished. He's at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Actually, he's a fairly conservative guy, but a superb historian of Spain. Read, read these books. Thomas's sympathies are with the Republicans in this fight, but he is at least honest and forthcoming in describing the war that was fomented against the Catholic Church. But it's a very complex tale. It's one that if I had been smart, I would have told Deacon Sabatino I never would accept this invitation to speak on. You have anarchists up in Barcelona and Catalonia, and then tied to that anarchist up there, you have a separatist movement. So even people who are not separatists in Catalonia or anarchists still want to be separated from Spain. Just this one tiny example of the conflicting ingredients in this recipe that blew up in Spain. So my question is, why this vicious, evil hatred of the church? Uh, I mean, war is hell, and especially a civil war. But this went above and beyond, as you've pointed out. So why this particular viciousness? Yeah. This doesn't explain all of it or even most of it, or maybe just a small part of it. There is a, um, a fierceness in the Spanish people, I think. God bless them for it, because it's what brought the cross to the new world. But on the other hand, sometimes these things reveal themselves in more ghastly ways. This door to hell was pushed open in the uh, war against authority and against the church at the moment of the Protestant rebellion, but it really was flung open wide at the time of the French Revolution. And that is when that's when these, <laughs> these demons came up into the earth, and they just went absolutely mad. And France, like Spain, France just tore at her own throat until the princes of Europe gathered to stop her from doing it. Why? You know, it's part of the mystery of evil. It's certainly part of the reality of modernity, which is an anti-Christian quality central to it. It's terrifying to think what we're capable of. But of course, we kill a million and a half unborn babies in this country every year. Mothers killing their own babies. Well, how much more violent an act can there be? A mom killing her own child, her own baby, unborn baby. Yeah, I've got a comment and a question on uh, not just Spain, but also the, some of the Latin American countries. It seems that problems are brought on partly because of this class situation. You have a absolute ruling class uh, that's some minority, I don't know, 5 or 10 percent or something like that, and they own all, at least in the old days, they own all the haciendas, the whole, all the farming land and so on, and uh, the rest of the people were just poor peasants, uh, just barely eking out a living from day to day, and there was no chance for any of them uh, to have any kind of uh, advancement in this world. And 
you know, I don't mean to accuse the entire church of this, but because most of the priests and so on were uh, helpful. But on the other hand, there were some of them, uh, the hierarchy, that were uh, supporting the wealthy and trying to keep the lower people at, in their uh, poor state of uh, poverty. Isn't that part of the reason why a lot of these revolutions broke out? Yeah, I'm very glad that you raised this. And Catholics who try to give a you know, comic book or two-dimensional version, which is, of course, you know, something you could accuse me of. It's a 45-minute talk, and you know, what are you going to... But I did point out, I think I said, we have to admit that the wealth gap, uh, particularly in the southern estates in Spain at this time, between landowner and effectively serf, I think that's the word I used, was significant. And it was similarly so in Mexico and in... Going back to France, the church in some ways had grown soft, especially a lot of the monasteries and a lot of the abbeys had grown very, very soft. There were abbots in France who were not living in their own abbeys. They were just off somewhere enjoying a very comfortable life, enjoying the wealth that these abbeys were bringing in. So these conditions, the failure of Catholics and the failure of members of the institutional church to live according to the teaching of Jesus Christ, create the social circumstances where this kind of revolution, it's the uh, tinder and then you put the spark to it. Now what is also true is that, and I'll talk about this some on Sunday, is that the church recognized exactly what you just described in the person of Leo XIII. And he, just 30 years roughly, a little bit more, before with Rerum Navarum, uh, with his encyclical, uh, we say the social justice encyclical, uh, recognized that the working man certainly was caught between two extremes of ownership, whether it was the state owning everything or, as you quite rightly observe, wealth in the hands of a very few. And so the church, in fact, was addressing this very question. And some of these economic reforms were, in fact, beginning to take place, especially in Mexico, but in Spain as well. But yes, absolutely. So when we fail to attend to economic justice as Catholics, and I know that's something that even a lot of right-wing Catholics or conservative Catholics say, you know, oh, that's social justice stuff. Well, that's something different. But it's, it's important for us to understand it. Read the encyclicals of, of Leo and Pius and, and John Paul II on social justice and, and get a, a good understanding of it. I won't go on too long, but excellent question. Did the church in Portugal or France, to use two examples, did they show solidarity with what was happening in Spain? If not, why not? No, yes, they did. Yes, they did. But I can't speak to it in any detail. Uh, yes, they did. Uh, but I, but I, I mean, I can't speak to it in any detail. Yeah, well, it's true. Uh, Monsignor Escrivá, for example. Uh, but yeah, Spanish refugees crossing the Pyrenees into France. And, yeah. How well known was the civil war in Barcelona that George Orwell wrote about in Homage to Catalunya to people in the West, to the gentleman's question regarding British and French support for the Republican uh, government. Oh, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it was well known. It probably helped to uh, shape that opinion. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth.
St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.